The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed many laws in 2018, and the SECURE Act both implemented new legislation in 2019, as well as extended some important provisions of the law previously allowed to expire at the end of 2017. This episode explains the most pertinent aspects of these changes and extenders. Welcome to the Accounting Tips for Entrepreneurs podcast. My name is Jeff Skolnick and I am a CPA with 35 years of experience working with small business owners, entrepreneurs, and network marketers on how to make their business more successful by understanding how taxes can work in their favor and not hurt their business. Each and every week I'm going to come to you with short, quick, and helpful tips on not only how to make sure you are doing everything possible to minimize your income tax liability, but also how to create the income for your business that you truly deserve. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed many laws in 2018, and the SECURE Act both implemented new legislation in 2019, as well as extended some important provisions of the law previously allowed to expire at the end of 2017. This episode explains the most pertinent aspects of these changes and extenders. First thing I want to talk about are the income tax rates. There were, previously to 2018, seven different income tax rates, and there still remain seven different income tax rates. However, they have changed. Prior to 2018, the income tax rates were 10, 15, 25, 28, 33, 35, and 39.6%. These were replaced by 10, 12, 22, 24, 32, 35, and 37%. So while you do see a couple of numbers that are still in there, the 10% and the 35% bracket, most of the new rates have dropped by anywhere from 2 to 4%. Uh, incidentally, the 2019 and 2020 charts are already out to show which brackets uh, apply to which wages or income. I'm sorry. Now, what I feel to be one of the most important and significant deductions added in 2018 by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is the deduction for qualified business income of pass-through entities. Sometimes you'll see this written as Section 199, Capital A. Now, that's just the Internal Revenue Code section that, uh, that contains this provision. So beginning in 2018, there is now a 20% deduction allowed for sole proprietors, partnerships, and S-corporations, as well as owners of rental real estate. There are a number of limitations that must be met, and the calculation is limited to 20% of taxable income excluding capital gain income. There are additional limitations that are imposed for personal services businesses. Now, personal service businesses are defined as any trade or business involving the performance of services in the field of health, law, accounting, actuarial science, performing arts, consulting, athletics, financial services, brokerage services, or any trade or business where the principal asset of such trade or business is the reputation or skill or one or more of its employees or owners. Once the taxable income threshold is met, $160,700 for individuals 
and double that, or 321400 for married individuals filing jointly in 2019. If you were involved in one of the businesses I just mentioned, then this 20% deduction will begin to phase out over the next $50,000 for individuals or $100,000 for married individuals filing jointly. Now, I don't expect you to necessarily be able to um, decipher if you are in one of these businesses, but if you think you may be, obviously you should go talk to a tax professional because this is a huge deduction, which can be very helpful, but obviously you don't want to take it if you're not allowed to. Now, for taxpayers that are not in these service businesses, uh, once those taxable income thresholds that I just mentioned are met, there are additional limitations that apply that are based on W-2 wages paid by the business and the original cost basis of certain equipment. As we know, in 2018, the standard deduction increased substantially, and in 2019, there was a cost of living adjustment to that as well. So for 2019, the standard deduction for married individuals filing jointly is $24,400. It is $18,350 for those filing as head of household and $12,200 for everybody else. There was also an increase in the child tax credit. The child tax credit has been doubled from $1,000 to $2,000 for children under age 17. And again, that started in 2018. The maximum amount of refundable credit is $1,400 per child. A refundable credit is a credit that exceeds your tax liability. So there is now allowed another $500 credit for all dependents other than those qualifying for the child tax credit. Uh, And these people would include your dependent children over age 16, or let's say you had your parents as, as dependents. Now, the other important aspect here is the income phase-out limitations, which prior to 2018 were began at $110,000 for a joint filer, have been increased to $400,000 for joint filers, and $200,000 for everybody else. Um, and that was typically, before 2018, it was $75,000 for single individuals, $55,000 for married individuals filing separately. The importance of this means that not only was the credit doubled from $1,000 to $2,000, but many more people will be able to take it because of the income phase out uh, being at a much, much higher number. Medical expense deduction. As most of us know, in order to take medical expenses, unreimbursed medical expenses, which means was has not been reimbursed by insurance proceeds, in order to deduct medical expenses as a deduction, they had to exceed 7.5% of your adjusted gross income. So if your adjusted gross income was $100,000, you would not get the benefit of any medical expenses paid until they exceeded $7,500. Now, this 7.5% figure was slated to increase to 10% in 2019, making it even more difficult to deduct medical expenses. However, the SECURE Act, which was passed in December of 2019, reverted the... um, number from 10% back down to 7.5% for 2019 and 2020. Now I want to go over some things uh, in the arena of um, discharged indebtedness. General rule is if you have a discharge of indebtedness, in other words, you owed somebody money, let's say a credit card company, um, 
and it was reduced. You worked out a deal with the credit card company, you owed them $20,000, they reduced it to $10,000. Typically, this is considered to be taxable income unless an exception in the law exists. And the current exceptions are for bankruptcy, insolvency, and qualified farm indebtedness. Now, in 2018, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act added student loans discharge on account of death or disability. So in other words, if you had if you had a discharge of indebtedness of a student loan based on death or disability, that would no longer be considered to be taxable income because there's an exception. Now, one exception that was allowed to expire at the end of 2017 was the exception of discharge from qualified principal residence debt. Taxpayers were permitted to, to exclude up to $2 million, $1 million if married filing separately, um, without paying income tax on that. Again, this was allowed to expire at the end of 2017. The SECURE Act of 2019 not only extended that provision for 2019 and 2020, but it also extended it retroactively, meaning if this pertained to you in 2018 and you picked up income because you had a discharge of personal residence debt, you were allowed to go back, amend your 2018 return, and get a refund. Beginning in 2018, 529 accounts, you were now allowed to take distributions of up to $10,000 that can be used for certain qualified expenses in connection with the enrollment or attendance at an elementary or secondary public, private, or religious school. The SECURE Act, passed in 2019, further expands this. They allow now um, an expanded definition of qualified higher education expenses to include an apprenticeship program registered and certified with the Secretary of Labor. The law also allows a maximum of $10,000 lifetime limit to be used to repay the principal or interest payments of any qualified education loan of the registered beneficiary and his or her siblings. The $10,000 limit is per person. Therefore, an individual with two siblings can withdraw $30,000 as a lifetime maximum to pay off $10,000 of principal and or interest of a qualified education loan of the beneficiary and $10,000 for each of the siblings. Personal exemptions, as we went over many times, are eliminated after 2017. There is a limitation uh, for the deduction of state and local taxes, sometimes referred to as SALT. Beginning in 2018, there's an overall limitation which applies to all state, local, and property taxes. The deduction on these taxes combined is capped at $10,000, $5,000 for married individuals filing a separate return. Qualified residence interest after 2017 was limited a little bit. Prior to 2018, you were allowed to deduct qualified mortgage interest um, if you were married filing jointly on principal loans of up to a million dollars, $500,000 for those um, filing separately. Those numbers have been reduced to $750,000 and $375,000 respectively after 2017. Now, if you have a loan that has a principal balance between $750,000 and a million dollars going into 2018, you are allowed to continue 
to deduct the mortgage interest on those loans. I'm talking about new loans. However, home equity interest is not deductible after 2017 and there was no grandfather clause. The only exception there is if you take out a home equity loan to actually build onto your house or put an addition on your house, then the home equity interest would be considered indebtedness acquisition and you would be allowed a deduction. The deduction for mortgage insurance premiums. This is another deduction that was taken away after 2017. The SECURE Act, again, passed in 2019, allows this in 2019 and 2020, also allows you to go back and amend your 2018 return if it would help you. So mortgage insurance premiums, they do phase out. If your adjusted gross income is over $100,000, or 50,000 if married filing separately, it begins to phase out between 100 and 110,000 of adjusted gross income, and again, 50 to $55,000 of those married filing separately. Qualified tuition and fees deduction. This is an above the line deduction for qualified tuition and fees. Now, when I say above the line, I mean this is above the adjusted gross income line. And the significance of that means that you get the benefit of this whether you itemize your deductions or not. Now, you are allowed a $4,000 deduction if your adjusted gross income does not exceed $65,000 or $130,000 for joint filers. Or you're allowed a deduction of $2,000 if your AGI exceeds $65,000 but not $80,000 or exceeds $130,000 but not $160,000 for joint filers. If your AGI exceeds the $80,000 or $160,000 threshold, then no deduction is allowed. Again, this was another provision that was extended by the SECURE Act of 2019. So again, it pertains to 2019, 2020, and you are allowed to go back and amend your 2018 return if it helps you. Changes to the kitty tax. The kitty tax is something that was implemented by the IRS years ago, and the reason for this was um, actually implemented by, by, by Congress. The reason for this is wealthy taxpayers used to take their money, transfer it from their name to their children's names, and then have the income tax paid on their investment earnings, interest, dividends, capital gains, taxed at the child's income tax rate, which was lower than the parent's tax rate. Now, prior to 2018, children with unearned income of more than $2,200 that were under age 18 at year end, or 18 but didn't have earned income that was more than half their support, or full-time students between the ages of 19 and 23 were subject to the kiddie tax. There were some additional conditions where at least one of their parents had to be alive at the end of the year, and they were required to file an income tax return and it was not a joint return. So first I want to explain what unearned income is. And I want to point to the IRS publication, um, and this is their definition, that unearned income is generally all income other than salaries, wages, and other amounts received as pay for work actually performed. It includes taxable interest, dividends, capital gains, including capital gain distributions, the taxable part of social security and pension payments, certain distributions from trusts, and unemployment compensation. So again, this is mostly to stop individuals that had money 
from transferring assets to their children and having it taxed at a lower rate. So prior to 2018, if a child was subject to kitty tax, it was taxed at the parents' rate. In 2018, this was changed to where the kids would be taxed on the income tax rates of trusts. And the reason that this is so important is that trusts hit the top rate very, very quickly. In 2018, just to give you an example, trust income tax rates were 10% for taxable income between zero and $2,550, 24% for income not exceeding $9,150, 35% for income not exceeding $12,500, and 37% thereafter. By contrast, income tax rates of individuals filing joint returns in 2018 were 10% on the first $19,050 of taxable income, 12% on income up to $77,400, 22% on income up to $165,000, 24% on income up to $315,000, and 32% on income up to $400,000. I'm not even going to get into the 35 and 37% brackets. And if they were married people that were, um, if they were, individuals that were not married filing jointly, in other words, single individuals, the brackets were still the same, but thresholds were half. And the reason that I point that out is you could see that if somebody was subject to kitty tax and had $13,000 of income, they're already taxed at 37%, where if they were taxed on their parents' income and their parents' income was less than $165,000, they would only be paying 22%. So some significant, um, differences by using your parents' income tax rate in most cases and the, the, the tax rates of a trust. And again, this was extended by the SECURE Act of 2019. So again, this goes for 2019 and 2020. And as I mentioned with a couple of the other extended provisions, you are allowed to go back to 2018. And if it would benefit you to do so, you're allowed to amend your return uh, and not use the, the tax rates of the trusts and use your parents' tax rates or the tax rates of the parents to reduce the income tax. Personal casualty losses after 2017 are limited to federally declared disaster areas. Miscellaneous itemized deductions, which were previously deductible once they exceeded 2% of adjusted gross income, are pretty much no longer deductible. There are some exceptions. But these expenses included income tax prep fees, investment advisory fees, and non-reimbursed employee expenses. Um, there are certain things like moving expenses, which are out for almost all individuals, but there are exceptions for military personnel. Again, uh, so if you are in, if you are a military, uh, someone who would be subject to the rules of military personnel, certainly talk to a tax professional about it. But for the most part, those deductions are out. Now, gambling losses are still in after 2017. They are, however, not subject to the 2% limitation of adjusted gross income. And in fact, they were expanded a little bit to include such thing as travel expenses. However, however, gambling losses are only allowed up to the extent of gambling winnings. Alimony payments will no longer be deductible or are no longer deductible if you were divorced after 2018. So if you were divorced after 2018, the alimony payments are not deductible payments by the payor, nor are they income by the person receiving the alimony payments. If you were divorced prior to 2019, then your alimony payments continue to be deductible 
and the alimony payments you receive can continue to be income even after 2018. The annual gift tax exclusion is $15,000 beginning in 2018. So in other words, you can give uh, $15,000 to anybody in 2018 forward and there are no gift tax consequences. The individual mandate for individuals failing to maintain health insurance coverage is repealed beginning in 2019. The individual mandate is the provision of the ACA or Obamacare that penalized individuals that, that did not maintain health insurance. I do caution taxpayers to look at their individual states. My home state of New Jersey, for instance, has instituted their own individual mandate. So for 2019, even though you will not be penalized on a federal level for not having health insurance, as a New Jersey resident, as a New Jersey resident, if you do not have health insurance, you will still be penalized in the state of New Jersey. Alternative minimum tax, that has changed as well as of 2018. Um, used to begin at a, a, a low level, um, $160,900 for married individuals and $120,700 for single taxpayers. It's been raised to $1 million for married taxpayers filing jointly and $500,000 for everybody else in 2018. Lastly, I wanted to highlight some of the new provisions that were added by the SECURE Act. Most of these provisions affect the retirement plan arena. Now these provisions are, I'm gonna start with what I believe to be the most um, important, is the elimination of the ability to stretch required minimum distributions or RMDs. Now, what happens is when you deal with, most of the time when you deal with income and deductions, if one person is allowed a deduction, somebody else picks up income for the most part, keep the world in balance. When you're dealing with retirement plans, what happens is a company is generally, or an individual is allowed a deduction currently, even though they're not gonna pick income up until sometime down the road. So this is considered tax deferred. It's not tax exempt because you're not getting rid of the tax. You're deferring it until sometime down the road when the person's retired, maybe in a lower income tax bracket, but you're deferring it. And even if you're in the same tax bracket, you're not paying tax for years down the road. So you have the time value of money that helps you out. However, what happened was um, once you reach a certain age, it was 70 and a half, has been changed now to 72, but once you reach the age, the government said, you have to now start taking this income out because we want you to start paying tax on it. And the way you figure this is you would take your, the balance of your retirement accounts at the, end of the, at the beginning of the year and divide it by whatever your um, life expectancy is. And that is determined by some tables provided by, um, you can find them in IRS publications. So let's just say, for example, you had $100,000 in retirement at the beginning of the year, and your life expectancy, according to the tables, is 25 years. You would have to take a $4,000 required minimum distribution, which you do want to take because the penalty for not taking it is 50%. But now what happened in the past is, let's say you passed away. When that money was then given to your beneficiary, they were typically allowed to stretch that payment over their life expectancy. And if they were younger, maybe that would be 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And again, you're always allowed to take out more than the required minimum distribution. 
but you always want this number to be low because you don't want to have to take it and you may want to defer this let it grow tax deferred until your later years and also possibly pay a lower income tax on it because if you're retired you're probably not going to be in as high a tax bracket now the law was changed and basically said if you're a non-spouse beneficiary with very few exceptions you have to take that money within 10 years which just again allows the government to start collecting tax revenue at a little bit quicker pace or actually sometimes in a lot quicker pace and possibly at a higher income tax bracket because you may still be working and be in a higher tax bracket than you would otherwise be if you were retired. Um, as I mentioned, the age to begin RMDs was raised from 70 and a half years to 72 years of age. There is also no longer an age limit for taxpayers to be allowed to contribute to a traditional IRA. Formerly, taxpayers could not contribute to a traditional IRA after age 70 and a half. And lastly, I want to mention one more provision that was added by the Secure Act, and that is distributions from retirement plans before age 59 and a half are now allowed of up to $5,000 for the birth of a or an adoption of a child if it occurs within one year of the birth or adoption of the child. Now, these distributions will be subject to income tax, obviously, but there is no 10% penalty for early withdrawal. And again, this $5,000 amount is per person. So if you have a married couple that um, gives birth to a child or adopts a child, each can take up to $5,000 out of the retirement plan. Again, you will pay income tax on it, but you will not have a 10% early withdrawal penalty, which generally occurs with any distributions before age 59 and a half, unless an exception occurs. Thanks again for listening to the Accounting Tips for Entrepreneurs podcast. If you could please head over to Apple Podcasts, iTunes, or Spotify and leave me a five-star rating and write a review. Also, please connect with me on social media. If there are any tax or accounting-related topics you would like me to cover, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. If you are that small business owner or entrepreneur that really wants to learn more about how to minimize your tax liability and maximize your income, just head over to www.jeffcpaworld.com and I'll see you over there. Have a great day.